it, it establishes this uh, narrative of you know Russian secret chemical weapons program, and now we have a apparent chemical weapon attack in Syria. It's only a matter of time before someone explicitly links those two together and in some way blames Russia for what happened in Syria. Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. You were just listening to a clip from my interview with Tom Secker, which you're about to hear. On Friday, April 13th, the US, the UK, and France announced joint airstrikes on Syria in retaliation for Assad's alleged chemical weapons attack on April 4th. A short time ago, I ordered the United States Armed Forces to launch precision strikes on targets associated with the chemical weapons capabilities of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. A combined operation with the armed forces of France and the United Kingdom is now underway. Tom, being as prescient as he always is, suggested that this alleged chemical weapons incident in Syria that happened on April 4th would be linked together with the alleged Salisbury poisoning incident that happened on March 4th. Five days after we recorded that podcast, UK Prime Minister Theresa May implied during her speech announcing the joint airstrikes on Syria that Salisbury had something to do with the response. But these strikes are about deterring the barbaric use of chemical weapons in Syria and beyond. And so to achieve this, there must also be a wider diplomatic effort, including the full range of political and economic levers, to strengthen the global norms prohibiting the use of chemical weapons which have stood for nearly a century. Although of a much lower order of magnitude, the use of a nerve agent on the streets of the UK in recent weeks is part of a pattern of disregard for these norms. So while this action is specifically about deterring the Syrian regime, it will also send a clear signal to anyone else who believes they can use chemical weapons with impunity. You explicitly linked uh, the overnight action to the poisonings in Salisbury. Was the overnight action just about Assad or was it explicitly a warning to Russia as well? The Secretary-General is warning that the Cold War is back and he is fearful we don't have the institutional structures to contain it. Of course, before these airstrikes even took place, United States neoconservative and neoliberal factions in the media had already seized hold of the narrative, and some of them, including Victoria Newland, even implied that a chemical weapons attack by Russia could happen here in the United States. Victoria Newland, do you hear Paul Saunders' skepticism? Do you share that skepticism of whether Russia did this? I don't. I don't think that 20 governments, including our own, would have joined in solidarity with the UK in a very, sending a very important signal to Vladimir Putin that using a military nerve agent produced in Russian labs on civilians in Salisbury is acceptable to the international community. Uh, you know, if it can happen in Salisbury, it can happen in St. Louis, it can happen in Seattle. In the United States press, there were almost no dissenting voices to be heard about the Salisbury incident. However, in the UK press, there was at least one voice 
that was pushing back on the official narrative, and that was the voice of former ambassador to Uzbekistan for the UK, Craig Murray. Let's speak to the former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, Craig Murray. He uh, joins us live from Edinburgh. Hello to you, Mr Murray. Thank you for joining us on Sky News this afternoon. Who did it, do you think? Well, we don't know. Uh, there are a range of uh, possible suspects, of which both the Russian state and Russian non-state actors have to be among the, the suspects. But there are many other possibilities, including, of course, the, the obvious possibility that somebody did it in order to try to uh, damage Russia by making it look like them. Today I'm bringing on a very special guest who I have been a fan of for a long time and who does excellent work and excellent commentary on all sorts of different issues. But recently I've been finding his podcast, Clandestime, extremely valuable and useful <laughs> for certain events going on right now that I personally have a hard time keeping track of and parsing out all the details from. Tom Secker is my guest today. And he is the host of Clandestime on uh, spyculture.com. And Tom is also the co-author of an excellent book with Matthew Alford called National Security Cinema. And Media Roots did a podcast um, about national security cinema, I believe around six months ago. It was one of our more, more popular episodes. People liked it quite a lot. And the book National Security Cinema is um, something I would recommend everybody who's listening to this podcast to actually check out and buy a copy of. It's one of the most fascinating books I've read in, I don't know, the last five years or so. And I read a lot of political books. But National Security Cinema specifically is all about the U.S. government and different U.S. government agencies' relationship with Hollywood and how that has an influence on Hollywood productions. With so many examples in it, it's just jam-packed with, uh, with detail and references. And I highly recommend everybody check that out. So welcome to Media Roots Radio, Tom. Thanks for having me, Robbie. It's good to be talking to you again. Very good to be talking to you. So part of the reason I brought Tom on today is to talk about something that he's been covering in detail lately and giving great analysis on, which is the Salisbury poisoning incident, which, of course, if you've heard about it by now, um, the UK government or actually only certain branches of it after Porton Down released their findings, are claiming that it was the work of the Russian government. And, uh, you know, obviously, as always with this, it's directly the work of Vladimir Putin. Now, Tom, do you want to give a, an overview of exactly what is alleged to have happened? And then we can we can parse out some of the details from there. Sure, sure. So on March 4th, I think it was, just over a month ago now, these two Russians, uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter Ulia, Ulia, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, um, were found slumped, uh, passed out on a park bench in the middle of Salisbury, this town in Wiltshire in England. And initially, this didn't get a lot of media attention. It was just reported as some kind of, you know, curious two people kind of found in strange circumstances. And after a few days, and obviously after everyone realized this guy is a spy of some sort, uh, probably a double agent, ultimately, it started getting a lot more media attention. And then you started getting this whole thing about, oh, they were poisoned, that this was some kind of uh, weaponized 
uh, a chemical weapon had been used against them. And then you start getting the allegations against Russia and the government, or at least Theresa May and Boris Johnson, uh, start making some very, very explicit accusations, um, way beyond any evidence that they were presenting, saying that, you know, this was definitely the Russian state, this could only have been authored by the Russian state and no one else. It was uh, named, the poison that was used was named to be Novichok. And at one point, they even named a uh, specific strain uh, because Novichok actually refers to a family of poisons, like a, a group of different ones that were produced over a, a period of time. Um, and they, they even named a, a specific, you know, uh, brand of this that was used. And what, what was the, what, what did they call it? What brand did they say it was? It was a, a kind of like a code name. It was A234, I think it was, something like that. I see. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, briefly, the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, sort of asked, well, hang on, have you actually got any evidence for this? He gets absolutely pilloried in the press for doing so. And then within a few days, he publishes this kind of quite disappointing Guardian article where he goes, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It definitely was Russia or, or something to do with the Russian government. I totally accept that, um, even though we still haven't been presented with any evidence for it. Um, but then cautions against starting World War Three. Well, OK, fair enough. We certainly shouldn't be starting World War Three over this um, or really over anything that I, can, I can't think of a scenario that would be worth starting World War Three over. Um, this thing kind of bundles along for another couple of weeks where not an awful lot happened. We're told that the Scripples are still in hospital this whole time um, in critical condition. There's essentially sort of no update on on what's going on with them. And then we got this interview on Sky News a few days ago where the chief executive of Porton Down, this military defense laboratory, who are Britain's center for developing these sorts of weapons and in the past have conducted some pretty horrible experiments with chemical and biological weapons. Um, he says, actually, we're not 100% sure it's Novichok. He said it's Novichok or from that family. And this was a bit of a strange statement because Novichok is the family name for that group of poisons. So what's he actually saying there? Um, and he says, at any rate, we have no evidence of the country of manufacture. We've got no idea where this came from. And so everyone pointing fingers at Russia is doing so without any basis in evidence at all, except for, of course, the fact that the guy's a Russian spy. That's the only, you know, link to Russia. So let me just stop you there for a second. So even Porton Down, this recent, um, not really necessarily denial, but just a sort of factual statement on, on their findings. I remember reading initially that they couldn't prove the source of it, but you're also saying that they could. They didn't. They actually said that they're not 100% sure if it's something even from, they think it's something from the Novacek family, but they don't even really know exactly what it is. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, simply that the way he phrased his answer leaves some kind of ambiguity there. It seems that he's saying, yes, this, this was Novichok. But <laughs> if, it, if it was from the Novichok family, just say, yes, it was one of the Novichok family of poisons. I don't see why he had to phrase it in a strange way. Because a lot of the statements made around this, um, for a while they were saying it was of a type developed by Russia. They weren't even using the word Novichok. 
So interesting. Okay. It, there's a lot of strange rhetoric around exactly what poison this supposedly was. And I'm not even sure. For example, where did Port and Down get their samples from? I mean, <laughs> the ones they actually, like, I mean, did they get them from the bodies uh, of these two poisoned people? Uh, did they get them from the house? Did they get them from the car? There's been a lot of different um, speculation and a lot of different reporting saying, oh, it was done this way, it was done that way. But I've never seen anyone actually say, this is where we took the samples from. These are the samples of our own that we compared them to that we developed for presumably this purpose or whatever yeah. other purpose. Um, that whole process has been shrouded in total mystery. We know it's something like that has gone on at Port and Down, but exactly what they've done and where they've taken this evidence from and how they've processed and examined it. I've, I haven't got a clue. I've been following this quite closely, as you know, and I, I don't have a clue what the answer to that is. So it's shrouded in mystery as far as I'm concerned. Well, one would maybe assume, and this is just pure speculation, that perhaps they got blood or urine samples somehow from the Screeples and that they were tested it that way. But we're not. what you're saying is we're not being told anything about how um, they tested that and compared it to whatever they had in their labs. And just while you were talking, I, I just wanted to throw out there um, that Porton Down um, is where David Kelly worked. Um, and that's a name that comes up frequently on our podcast when we're talking about, um, you know, the, this concept of Russia murdering journalists or murdering whistleblowers. And as you, you raised in your, in your podcast and your analysis of this, Tom, is that Porton Down is coincidentally only eight miles away from the this actual incident is that correct yeah something like that around eight miles yeah i mean it's a strange coincidence i'm not saying that it means that the uk government was behind it we're going to go into sort of who has the you know biggest motives or you know maybe even some speculation about who did it but i guess right now i think that's less important than just showing that this is this is a propaganda campaign of some kind obviously and what they're actually trying to accomplish with it seems fairly obvious, but at the same time, it doesn't seem to be working necessarily in the in the ways that they hoped, in the way that Theresa May and people like Boris Johnson may have hoped it would. How deadly is Novichok supposed to be compared to Sarin? Because now they're they seem to be doing well. They've actually both recovered, um, apparently, and we're going to go into that later, but. You know, how deadly is it supposed to be compared to sarin and other nerve agents? And how could someone have actually survived this in your mind? Well, as far as the reporting goes, there's been this widely quoted, widely repeated statement that it is um, that the family of poisons is five to eight times more lethal, more deadly than VX gas, which is considered to be, you know, up there with the most deadly substances around. So, I mean, I'd. I'd I'm not a chemical weapons expert, but it sounds like it's n not the sort of thing. It, it, there's several elements to this. Firstly, yeah, how could they survive this? If they were exposed to this in any significant way, if they ingested it, if a bunch of it was sprayed in their faces or something, you'd think they'd be dead by now. They should have been dead within a matter of hours, probably minutes. Um, so I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Because no one said, how was this stuff actually deployed? How was it weaponized? 
this is the thing. This guy Miryazanov, who wrote the book about all of this, he you know supposedly exposed Russia's chemical weapons program, and he was writing about this back in the 1990s. He was saying they had trouble with it in the laboratories, but they you know they were testing laboratory equipment and people's clothes and so on to see how much of this was sort of getting exposed and you know toxicity levels and so on. And they said they they had endless problems with this stuff. Um, so how you would transport it and weaponize it and then use it on someone is not something anyone's really explained. And the main sort of whistleblower on this topic says that he hasn't a clue how you would do that because the stuff's kind of almost too potent to actually be used in any way. Um, all of which makes for a very, very difficult story to understand in terms of what actually happened to these people beyond the question of, you know, who did it, just the basic mechanics of how were they poisoned and if they were poisoned with this stuff, how were they still alive? So you you brought up the question of um, them taking uh, blood or urine samples. When the OPCW turned up, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, of which Porton Down is like a accredited agency or something, um, they turned up to help with the investigation and help with the identification of the poison used. And there was a uh, like a briefing, a submission to the court where they had to give a ruling to say, yes, you can take some samples from these two people in hospital in order to do the testing. And in, even in that, they were pretty ambiguous as to where this stuff might have come from or even what it might be. So we know that as far as we know, they took those samples and that's partly what they tested for. But the problem there is that then you get the the body's reaction to this stuff. That's the, the data that you get from the, that sort of sampling, right? You don't get, you don't like test someone's blood for Novichok and find Novichok in their blood. You know what I mean? You find a reaction to some kind of nerve agent. Um, this is because this is not a poison that was necessarily ingested it's a it's a chemical weapon, so I guess I mean from my understanding, just traditionally, you know, most people think of chemical weapons as being deployed in gas form, and that you breathe it in, and then it has an immediate uh, neurological physical effect on you. But what you're saying is it it might it wouldn't even show up in blood work, even if they were trying to look for it. It would just show the sort of the reaction to it. Am I understanding that correctly? The way I get it from having spoken to some doctors that I know, um, not people who are experts in this necessarily, but nonetheless, I sort of asked their opinion because I was trying to understand this a bit better, is, yeah, that nerve agents work so quickly that it's not really a question of like leaving a trace of the actual agent itself in your body. It's not like cocaine because, um, <laughs> you know, that continues working and continues in your bloodstream for hours after you take it. So it's not like that. It's a much, much faster reaction that it essentially just shuts down your, your nervous system and your heart and your lungs and you die. Um, so, yeah, at best, you'd be able to tell that someone had been poisoned with a nerve agent and that that's what had killed them. I don't think you'd be able to use that sort of testing to determine the specific nerve agent itself unless you had a sample from their skin or or whatever else it is that you actually you know that was still stuck on them their clothing or something obviously you could do it that way so 
that whole process again it's been it's been sort of <laughs> clouded and and hidden from the public and i think that's a massive problem when you have the the prime minister and the foreign secretary the two kind of senior politicians on an issue like this making such strong pronouncements in public when the actual process of gathering evidence and interpreting and understanding that has been almost non-existent in the media coverage. Which is a familiar theme that we've, you know, seen many, many times before. Mm. Um, but I guess, I mean, and this might seem like an obvious question, but I want your opinion on it, is why do you think Theresa May and Boris Johnson went ahead with such um, grave pronouncements like that, but without the actual evidence and seemingly not actually having the evidence from what we understand now? What was the purpose of that? Um, what was the purpose of it? I, I suppose you could break that down several ways. Are they trying? Is the primary aim here to feed into the uh, Russia phobic narrative, or is that simply something they're trying to capitalise on for more domestic political reasons? Because to be honest, it's not going well for this government. Uh, we've got local elections in a few weeks' time, and. All of the polls suggest that the, the the Tories, the government in power, are going to get hammered. The, the The polls aren't working for them. The Brexit negotiations are going very, very poorly. They're not. I mean, that, that's a separate problem. But just to get into it for a moment, it's because the government doesn't really have any like solidified consensus or agenda. The Tory party itself is split over what they want out of the whole Brexit process. So they're going into these negotiations without really being sure what the aim is and what they're trying to get out of it. As a result, 90% of what comes back is just what the what the EU wants anyway, which kind of begs the question, what's the point of all this? And so then it's not really a vote winner for them anymore. And they're struggling. They're, they're kind of a dying government. If there was a general election right now, they'd probably lose. So maybe it's that they're trying to sort of capitalize on that whole Russia narrative in order to get a short-term wave of nationalism that might help them in the local elections. Maybe it's more a long-term strategy that, you know, this is what they've now centered on as their, you know, this is the, the, the story that we're going to push and this is the kind of politics that we're going to advance in order to try and win support and win votes something like that i would guess um it's not really clear though i mean because aside from making a lot of absurdly phrased public statements and then in boris johnson's case contradicting them and then contradicting them again um it's not really clear what they're getting out of this i don't think this whole thing has made them look very good um they may have gone into this with malevolent intentions but they've kind of bungled it it's not it doesn't seem to be delivering any positive results for them so i'm a bit of a loss as to say what it is that they were intending in the first place well it's a very honest answer um and i appreciate you not going into making too many speculative leaps there i mean because i'm wondering the same thing myself and i guess my speculative leap makes me feel as if part of their purpose in going so public with those accusations was it seems as if this was trying to set up sort of a similar Tony Blair, George W. Bush kind of consensus about a 
you know, an alleged hostile foreign actor. And in the case mm-hmm. of the Iraq war, obviously, you know, by having Tony Blair and Bush sort of on the same page and making all these public pronouncements about Iraq's WMD program, it gave the Western world the false appearance that there was some kind of large consensus between, you know, across the pond, our allies over there, you know, completely stand behind us. And even though it was really only the UK and most other European countries were staunchly opposed to the Iraq war, or, or, you know, the majority of them were. Well, and even here, here in the UK, the majority of the public was opposed to the war. Of course, there was yeah. no there was no real public consensus. But I know what you mean. They're trying to create that myth of a sort of uh, um, an international gathering of opinion that says that we must do this. It's not just you know us saying it. It's everyone saying it. So you know everyone's got to get on board. And yeah, there was an attempt to do this. This was the absurd thing that you know our response to this. This supposedly okay. This is supposed to be the the first use of chemical weapons in a hostile. Uh, assassination or murder they claim since the second world war at least in europe um (laughs) they're saying this is you know the first time anyone's used a chemical weapon to assassinate someone in britain certainly in this kind of a way or at least try to assassinate i suppose since they're now magically alive again um our response apart from a bunch of hot air and politicizing was to expel a few diplomats who are obviously spies. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, that's like the one true thing that Theresa May has said is that, oh, these aren't just diplomats. They're unacknowledged members of Russian intelligence. Well, yeah, I'm sure they are. Um, what do you think we have embassies for? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's it's such an impotent response. It's like it, what we're saying is they tried to murder two people. Well, doesn't that w- warrant a more... Um, I don't know, intelligent response than just, oh, we're just going to boot some diplomats out, they're going to kick out a few Russian spies. Well, what, how is that a, a solution to the issue? Does that in any way stop Russia from doing this again, if you actually believe that that was true, um, which I don't? But, you know, hypothetically, if that was true, what good is any of this doing? And so then they went on their little tour of Europe saying, you know, we're sharing unprecedented intelligence with our allies to to demonstrate that this was definitely Russia, because apparently they can't show the public any evidence except for some great big photo op where they sent in 180 soldiers to supposedly decontaminate the town. Um, And some some of the photos from that were absurd. You have like half a dozen military guys in full decontamination gear sort of washing something down and then like five feet away there's a cop just stood there in his uniform no mask on no nothing i was gonna (laughs) ask you about that yeah i remember i saw those photos and thinking it was very odd myself it's clearly bullshit so (laughs) they're not decontaminating anything they haven't they don't seem to have found any poison anywhere for heaven's sake so what what are they decontaminating and why it's just like i say it's just a photo opportunity it's a fabrication well, you say um, you say in your podcast um, that there's no indication of special measures at the hospital to contain the poison, no indication of decontamination being necessary, no indication of what kind of treatment the victims received or of them being in a special unit. So we haven't been mm-hmm. told anything about that, which is very odd. I mean, even during like I mean, just just from um, the Ebola crisis that happened here like a 
maybe it was a couple of years ago now, um, we heard so much detail about the decontamination procedures because they wanted to make the public feel, you know, they, I guess the goal of that was to make the public feel like it wasn't going to spread. And they described it in so much detail. Um, you know, I remember seeing diagrams and picture, you know, pictographics and CNN and stuff, but we have absolutely nothing in terms of this incident. Well, not in terms of the house or the car that they traveled into town in or at the hospital. They've like had some pictures and things of them washing like random stuff in the middle of Salisbury city center. (laughs) Um, That doesn't seem to be as far as I can tell, particularly related to this. And there's certainly, this has never followed any like, uh, you know, what you would expect is report of stuff found substance found in, in, location (laughs) then you see pictures of them going in and contaminating it that isn't what's happened they haven't said that they found any of this as far as i can tell anywhere so i don't really know what they're washing (laughs) what are they cleaning away (laughs) are they just giving the town are they giving the town just a bit of a clean up i mean okay fair enough but it seems like a dubious use of military resources um so the whole thing is kind of laughable and absurd. I, I cannot believe that many people buy into this. And my sense of it is that it's a minority. It's only those people who will just believe this because it's, you know, Russia, 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 or it's just the usual, oh, it's them over there, it's the enemy. And there's a certain percentage of people who will just buy into that no matter who that enemy is or why you're saying they're the enemy. So aside from them, it seems to me there's a lot of skepticism out there even from people who you wouldn't normally expect it from. Well, that's that's a good sign. And and I guess from my perspective over here, it doesn't seem like there's very much skepticism, at least in the United States, towards this. There seems to be an overwhelming consensus on our media and just among our pundit and media class, journalist class here, that it was definitely Russia and that Putin is just so brazen and... And so out of control that he wants the world to know uh, that his, you know, that he's behind this. And I guess that's a good sign if the people in the UK are a little more skeptical of this. But I'm worried here that it's that skepticism is now just being steamrolled over by this overwhelming consensus. It's very frightening, and mm. and I guess one of the interesting things that happened out of this. Going back to this idea that Bush and Blair sort of, you know, in terms of just public perception, closed the circle on the sort of Iraq war propaganda push. It felt like right after this happened, right after Theresa May uh, came out and did that speech, that there was a huge push and a lot of pressure put on Trump's administration here in this country to try to get him to echo what Theresa May was saying and at least make some kind of public statement or pronouncement that he agreed with her and the UK government's conclusions. But he didn't make any kind of pronouncement. He didn't say anything. Instead, they just expelled, um, I think, something like over 140 Russian diplomats from this country as a response. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was it. And the media was breathing down Trump's neck to say something about Putin this narrative sort of got floated out there, which has come up before when talking about Trump and Russia, that Trump wants to have it both ways with Russia, that he wants to get along with Putin and get along with Russia, but also 
show the public that he's hard on Russia and that he's willing to take some harsh measures. And that's why he didn't say anything. But I, I don't really know if I agree with that, but I don't really know what to think. And I'm just wondering if you had any opinion on why Trump you know, wouldn't just automatically get on board what Theresa May is saying and why he would just be silent on this issue. Well, let me ask you a question. Has anyone else in the Trump administration really said anything about this? Is it just Trump who's silent? Or, I mean, have any other senior officials actually talked about this? Or is it mostly just the media and the pundit and, like you say, the kind of commentary class? For the most part, no one in the Trump administration has said anything about it, except for Rex Tillerson, who said something very mild about it, you know, maybe having to do with Russia and, you know, of course, the pundit class here pounced on that and said that, well, that's why he was fired, because he said something that, that contradicted the official White House line. But the official White House line was essentially nothing on it. Um, so that's what's odd to me is I don't I don't even think that they've really put out any statement about it either way, as far as I know, other than just we're expelling these Russian diplomats. It's a good question. I, I, I don't think there has been. So that's because very curious. In, because in this country, it's almost entirely been driven by a few senior people in the Tory party. It's not like everyone is out there making statements about this. And in the initial phase of it, like I said, when Corbyn sort of said, well, hang on, what is the evidence for this? There was a, a big media reaction against him. And there was that, you know, that sense of, oh, they've, they've built an instantaneous consensus of, of what's happened here and what we should do. But then that kind of melted away very quickly, partly because the, the total lack of evidence and the total lack of explanation of, well, what's going on in the investigation, what's actually happened here, what what information do we even have? Um, and in the absence of that, that's created a vacuum. And the only thing really filling that vacuum is Boris Johnson and his insane racist buffoonery. So like I say, that hasn't really won anyone over who wasn't already prone to being won over, who wouldn't already believe this just because they were told it. And so the the story has fallen apart quite quickly. And I think faith in the story has fallen apart quite quickly. And that's got to be a good thing. And I think maybe one of the reasons Trump has not said anything, I mean, if he has any sense at all, he'll have gone to the CIA and asked them, what do you make of this? What information actually is there that's like, you know, is there something I can actually go and say in public? And if the CIA have any sense, they'll have said, we haven't a clue. We don't know what the British are up to. We don't know why they're pulling this one now, because <laughs> there doesn't seem to be much of a rationale or a plan behind this. Um, I don't buy into the notion, for example, that this was entirely pre-planned by the, the British intelligence services or something, because if if they had, for one thing, I think they would have been clever enough to actually kill the two of them, because then they don't come back and tell any kind of story or make any public statement or anything, and we'll get onto that in a second, the problems that have now arisen because of that. Um, and also because the story itself hasn't been consistent. And normally when you get something that has that kind of uh, the, the smell of a MI5 or MI6 black operation, the story is is early, it's out there, it's established, <clears throat> and it's repeated. 
and it's consistent and therefore it convinces a lot of people. We haven't had that with this event. So I do wonder whether essentially Theresa May and Boris Johnson have just kind of gone completely off book for some stupid reason, because, I mean, frankly, they're both completely incompetent. So it's difficult to understand why they do anything. Um, (laughs) And maybe Trump has sort of maybe not the CIA, but maybe someone else has told him, look, we don't we don't really see this one playing out. We don't really see this one being a, a good thing to be publicly identified with. And so for once, he's actually kept his mouth shut because that's very difficult for Trump. Trump doesn't normally stay quiet on anything. Um, so I don't know whether it is about him trying to play some double game with Russia or it is more about this specific event is something you don't really want to be identified with right now because this story was never looking that solid. It was never looking like something to hang your hat on. And maybe I'm giving Trump too much credit uh, in interpreting it that way. I I really don't know. But you you asked me for an opinion, so that's my opinion. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I I think it's it's definitely something worth considering if if U.S. intelligence looked at this and said, look, there's just this is not not solid enough. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. It's not one that I considered before. Now. You talked about the inconsistency in this story and how it's all over the place and how parts of it are already falling apart. And one of the things you raise in your podcast is the different possibilities that have been thrown out there, inconclusive, you know, basically speculation at how they got poisoned and the different scenarios which have been proposed. And I'm, and, and I'm not even sure which one of these is actually official. You'll have to tell me if they've landed on one of these as being the likely um, delivery method. Um, one of them was that Novichuk was hidden in the makeup inside Screepball's daughter's luggage. Um, and you raised the question, well, what if someone opened her luggage accidentally? It seems like a sloppy assassination method. Um, the other possibility was that Novichuk was placed in the car of the Screepalls on their way to dinner in Salisbury. That's, you know, something that was also proposed. And that the one that I heard in the media, um, I didn't hear those other two possibilities. Um, The one that sort of ended up capturing my attention was that it was smeared on the door handle of Sergei Skripal's home. And those are all, you know, very different scenarios and also implies that no one really knows how this mm-hmm. they were actually poisoned. Yep. And also the last one, if I may say so, um, reminds me of uh, propaganda put out by the CIA and different um, and the FBI back during the hippie era in the United States when they believed that sort of um, this is pre the weathermen and and groups like that, but they believed that like hippie terrorists were going to mix LSD with a chemical called DMSO that it lets things absorb through your skin and rub them on doorknobs all over the country to like basically do LSD terrorist attacks. So just immediately that came to mind for me and I'm thinking, well, that sounds, you know, it almost seems cartoonish to propose that that could have happened. Somebody else could have touched the doorknob, but speak on some of those possibilities, which like, is any of those the official version or are they all sort of being floated out right now? Who is saying them? Like who attributes some of those theories to, to certain individuals, if you can. This is, again, the problem that in reading the media coverage of this, it's all attributed essentially to anonymous police briefings. Oh, great. It's just, you know, people on the investigation have said such and such, or they are exploring the possibility that whatever. So 
the the popular one is very much the the front door of the house. The other possibilities are just ones that I have seen raised in media stories. I don't know if there is such a thing as an official version yet, but in as much as there is any kind of uh, that a lot of people are saying the same thing, it's yeah, it's that it was the front door. And do people? I mean, has no one turned around and said? hang on, it rains a lot in this country. Like, a lot. We're known for having a lot of rain. <laughs> um, it is raining right now as I'm talking to you, you know? Um, that isn't a sensible way to try and kill someone. That's a sensible way to get a bunch of Novichok all over this guy's front yard. <laughs> like, wa- wash down the drain with a bunch of, like, rain and whatever else. That's, that's all you're likely to accomplish doing that it, it's it's insane that they're trying to float that idea and and again you can find all sorts of pictures from the media coverage of this of that house with police officers stood a couple of feet away with some of the police officers actually leaning on that door and this is in weeks before they started floating this idea that oh that's where how the poison was delivered it's it's again it's absurd that anyone would believe this it's ridiculous as a as a narrative to try and push this one. I guess that, I mean, yeah, it, it is obviously very confusing why the police, if, if that's where it came from, you know, why they wouldn't just put a, a, a decontamination area or protection zone around the whole, you know, his whole front yard or his entire house. It's, it does seem inconsistent with how you would normally investigate something like this. And that's an issue you raised several times on your podcast you know, even police here, when they're investigating drug uh, arrests or when they're like arresting, you know, or, or seizing drugs, um, fentanyl has become such a, a widespread problem in the United States um, that police actually wear special gloves uh, to protect themselves from getting it absorbed through their skin because even fentanyl is strong enough that it could actually make you overdose, have an opioid overdose, just merely from touching enough of it. So, it just seems extremely bizarre that if this nerve agent is, I think you said, what, 10 times, five to 10 times more powerful than sarin, how on earth would they be, you know, so cavalier and just sort of like not worrying about getting contaminated with this stuff? Well, sure. Just to come back again to, the, to my point that this doesn't come across like something that was pre-planned. This comes across like something that's been cobbled together very quickly by a bunch of PR people who don't really know what they're doing or what story it is that they're trying to tell because there's no cohesion to any of this. It's just a bunch of seemingly random scare tactics and photo opportunities, none of which add up to any kind of coherent narrative of events, which is, I mean, when you, when you look at something like the London bombings, which obviously I wrote a book on and various other things with that, that's exactly what the government ended up doing was publishing a narrative of events rather than any kind of investigative report or like the 9-11 commission inquiry or anything like that. They published a simple narrative that they said, this is what happened in, you know, this was the order of events and, and when they happened. And that was their way of convincing the public. And it was extremely effective. And for years afterwards, journalists just went back to that one document And that's where they took almost all of their information about that event. With this, 
I mean, the police have almost said nothing. Um, the politicians have done an awful lot of talking. It's taken a month, over a month, to actually get anyone senior from Porton Down to come out and say, you know, what evidence do they have and, and what have they investigated and what have they found out so far? So that is that isn't a process that convinces people quickly. And again, if you compare it to like, um, like in your films, you show a lot of the the days immediately after 9-11 when, okay, a bunch of different stuff was said, but it was a fairly coherent narrative of there are the aggressors and we have to go and get them. With this, there's been nothing, nothing anywhere near as well executed as that. So they've tried to exploit it for political reasons, no doubt. And they've told a fair number of lies in the process, but they don't seem to actually have any solid idea of what it is that they're trying to convince the public of. Well, it's very interesting you say that, Tom, because over here, it seems like they're just, they're, I mean, the U.S. media is trying to spin this into something much, maybe much more powerful than how it's being spun over there, because to the U.S. media class here, it's a total slam dunk that this is a Putin a, a, attempted assassination to the point where Victoria Newland was actually going on PBS News panel saying that, and this is her job now, if you're not aware of this, she's now head of the CNAS think tank in the United States. She, she um, quit from her um, State Department position as a, tr as a pro protest against the Trump administration. She had been serving since the Clinton administration. She says that this is a sign that Russia uh, is going to, or is thinking about, launching chemical weapons attacks in other countries that they have become so brazen that we should start considering the possibility of a chemical weapons attack from Russia happening inside New York City. So this is the way it's being spun here and it's not just Victoria Newland it's it's a lot of fear-mongering and it's a lot of well how could you possibly not believe this it's been well documented you must be buying into Russian propaganda or a disinformation campaign to even believe this portent down press release. Oh, it's taken out of context. Even people from the Intercept, like Ryan Gallagher, were trying to say that the way the the way the um, narrative was being spun, saying that portent down could improve this came from Russia, was actually not true. That it was taken out of context by Russian disinformation operators trying to sow discord and. Um, and doubt about the UK government's findings. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, that's actually not what's happening. You're trying to manipulate the narrative here. Um, that this is all, this. if you read the entirety of Porton Down's report, they make it very clear that they don't have the evidence. So it's not taken out of context, like these people are saying. But it's to me, it just becomes this clever media strategy where if you go on Twitter, for example, and just look at all these sort of resistance figures, all these neoliberal think tankers or, or pundits, they're all saying that this portent down press release is being seized on by Russian media and shady operators to try to cast doubt on all this stuff. But it, it really doesn't say what people are saying it says. And I, I find that personally to be clever spin because it's almost trying to get people to think, well, don't even look at that. Because it's actually not saying what the what you know these alternative media outlets are saying, or not even alternative media outlets, the Guardian, the Independent, a lot of UK mainstream outlets were reporting the same thing, saying that Porton Down did not have the evidence, and that Theresa May and others jumped ahead without having the evidence. I, I guess 
what is your what are your thoughts on that? I mean, does that sound different than the way it's happening over there, or is it kind of more or less the same and maybe just bigger here because we have a bigger media apparatus that's more streamlined to deliver this kind of propaganda narrative? Uh, I, I think there's a whole bunch of different things going on here. Um, for one thing, um, the U.S. media isn't covering it as closely because it didn't happen there. It happened here. For another, you've got elections coming up and the way in which the liberals are trying to reestablish some kind of authority and some kind of support in the wake of the whole you know, Trump fiasco and their inability to realize why it is that they lost to Donald Trump. Um, even though, of course, you know, Clinton actually did get more votes nationwide. Um, this notion that it was kind of like a, a landslide in favor of Trump or anything like that is actually absurd and in, inaccurate, but whatever. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? The way that, that the, this strategy that in particular the Democrat Party have adopted in the wake of that has been Russia. It's been Russiagate. That's the thing that you've got to do is you've got to vote Democrat because this is a matter of national security that, you know, the Russians are, are, are coming, that they're taking over. They've already taken over Facebook with a pitifully small number of Facebook ads. They've got like, you know, a couple of hundred Twitter bots that are apparently more powerful than the entire corporate media of the United States. They're, they're influencing opinion left, right and center and manipulating everyone because they're just that, you know, devilish and scheming and cunning because they're Russian. And that's kind of it, really. That's the attempt to reestablish the, 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 the liberal consensus is to say, be paranoid about Russia and anyone who isn't is somehow buying into this fake news Twitter bot rampage. Um, in, and that's... It's an interesting attempt. It, it's somewhat effective so far from what I can tell. Um, because, I mean, if you go on like Google now and you see what news sites Google will actually serve you up when you search under news terms, it's almost entirely liberal ones. The notion of finding dissenting opinion, either on the left or the right, anything outside of that you know, liberal or at least neoliberal center ground has kind of been nudged to the side and they don't really want people looking at it. And Facebook as well. People have noticed how, aside from certain sites, if you post something with a URL in it leading to your website or some other website, you'll get a lot less exposure than if you just post a picture. If you post a picture of a cat you it will show it to everyone <laughs> if you post a link to some kind of fringe media thing you'll get 10 percent the that's the way their algorithm works you'll get 10 percent of the exposure and that's become really really apparent that this is being done as an attempt to re-establish some kind of political consensus and the excuse and the rationale for all of this is of course you know trump and the russians and blah 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 so it doesn't surprise me for all those reasons, both the kind of broad political philosophical dynamic of trying to reestablish the liberal consensus and the very specific target of the elections. Um, that's why you're getting, if you like, a more one dimensional, rabid version of this story in America than we're getting in the UK. 
that would be my suggestion. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, I mean, we're, we're essentially amplifying here a more one-dimensional version of it, acting like it's way more of a slam dunk than, than I'm sure that if you watch the UK media coverage, then you would be able to see that it's actually not as much of a slam dunk as the U.S. media is portraying that it is. Before going back into, I wanted to go into a little bit of the history and also the future of what's, you know, what this might, what might happen next. But before I get there, let's talk a little bit more about the Screeples and the fact that they have survived with seemingly no permanent lasting damage of any kind. Who is Sergei Screepol? Give me a little bit of backstory on him. Why is he, why did he escape to the UK? Um, you know, how did he get out of Russia? Um, this former spy, why, you know, what, what motive, if any, would Russia have to assassinate him now? I mean, there's so many questions just about him. And then also maybe go into some parallels between him and Litvinenko and how that also happened in the UK, if, if you don't mind going into some of that. Because I don't think a lot of our listeners know very much about the Litvinenko incident, um, and some just some of the similarities between that and this. But of course, Litvinenko is dead; he didn't survive whatever mm. happened to him. So there's a big difference there. But um, go into some of that. Okay. Well, Sergei is um, he he was Russian intelligence. He defected to the British. He ends up being. Um, discovered i guess outed by the russians and they throw him in prison for several years and you do wonder if they really wanted him dead if he supposedly gave up so much to his british handlers um which by the way includes one guy who works for christopher Steele's private intelligence company the author of the Steele dossier um make that what you will but if he supposedly gave up so much information to them and betrayed so many of his comrades um, that they wanted him dead, why didn't they just kill him then when they had him in prison? No one would have found out. It can't be that hard to kill someone in a Russian prison and just not tell anyone. Rather than killing them in a really public way, in a foreign country... I mean, yeah, it just seems so, so strange on its face that they would do that. Anyway, so the way Sergei Skripal ends up back in the UK is after that spy ring got busted up in the United States, the one with um, Anna Chapman, the famous, beautiful redhead, um, there was a spy swap, essentially. And, I mean, that's how he ends up back here. Although, exactly why we were involved in that spy swap is kind of curious. I mean, surely that's an American and a Russian thing, but of course this is the way intelligence works, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> this is the, this is the new cold war. It's kind of like the old cold war. Um, so yeah, you, you gave back the Russian spy ring. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and in exchange, we got a few of our spies that they'd, you know, either caught or, or nobbled in some way and, and that they'd got control of again. Um, good old fashioned stuff, you know, I mean, it didn't take place in a misty evening on a Berlin bridge, but it's close enough. Um, and so, yeah, he'd been living here for several years, not really doing an awful lot from what, as from what anyone can tell, at least as far as I can tell, he was just living out his years as a retired old spook, not 
accomplishing very much at all. Why kill him now? Because, as I said in my podcast, firstly, this was done just before the Russian presidential election. And now, obviously, Putin was going to get re-elected anyway. And even aside from the rather obvious um, electoral irregularities, let's say, um, he still would have won. You know, it seems like, I mean, as far as I can tell, the ballot stuffing and what have you, that makes the difference between him winning 71% of the vote and 75% of the vote. You know, that party was always going to win that election anyway. But it doesn't make much sense to carry out a really big public black op on foreign soil just before then when you don't have to, when there's no pressing need to, when you could have killed this guy years ago if you wanted him dead that badly. And then you've got the World Cup this summer. This is Russia's attempt to host a you know, peaceful, successful World Cup to show themselves off on the world stage, to show that they're part of the international community and all the rest of it. Why sully that? Why cast a grey cloud over all of that by, again, doing something that you don't have to do? So unless, you know, unless Putin really is as crazy as all these neocons are trying to convince us he is, in which case you wonder how on earth has he remained in power for so long? Um, and how on earth isn't Russia just a complete mess? It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's only if he is, you know, the psychotic, crazed tyrant that they like telling us he is, um, that, that they would do this in this way at this moment in time. Otherwise, they wouldn't. They'd wait. They'd wait until after the World Cup, at least, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but you would be surprised how how some American pundits are trying to spin this and, and trying to explain the timing. I mean, it's very interesting the way that there, there's always, there's always some kind of insinuation, you know, and it's because obviously because Trump is enmeshed in this Russiagate uh, investigation here, there's just a lot of insinuations, I should say, being floated around. And there's not really, you know, a direct narrative necessarily saying this, but the insinuation is there. And the reason I think Christopher Steele is an important component to this is because U.S. media was trying to float the idea that the motive for trying to assassinate Skripal was because um, to send Christopher Steele a message and to send the people a message who are utilizing this dossier um, that you better watch out and not use this dossier or not do any more digging, you know, in this area. Um, and that was, I, I, I heard that in several places, that this was somehow, again, linked back to Trump, that maybe Trump, you know, is not necessarily involved in this assassination, but that Putin and the Russians are trying to protect Trump you know, from the more revelations that could come out through more of Christopher Steele's investigations or something to that effect. And I find that to be an extremely convoluted and very roundabout, un I mean, obviously unbelievable narrative, but yet that's sort of the insinuation um, that initially came out, actually, when, when the Christopher Steele um, connection was raised. Surely it would be easier for Russian intelligence to just go and threaten Christopher Steele. Well, I mean, it's, that... it's much, it's much, much more of a leap and much, much more of a bizarre, absurd conspiracy theory to <laughs> say that in order to intimidate this one guy, 
they attempted to kill a former spy who is being run by this guy's colleague or was <laughs> being run by this guy's colleague using a secret super secret chemical weapons program that they've supposedly been running for the last 10 years and that no one knew about and that this has now been exposed because of this one operation to intimidate this one guy who wrote a dossier which has been fairly widely questioned if not discredited really i mean again the the mental leaps that you have to go through in order to believe this stuff are, are quite extraordinary and that's why i don't think this story is going to be very effective it's not it's not simplistic enough for lots of idiots to buy into it if you like you actually have to sort of second guess everything in order to believe that this was the Russians. And I'm not saying, for just for the record, I'm not saying it wasn't the Russian state. I don't have a clue what's happened here or who was responsible. I really, really don't because the stories have been so contradictory and so all over the place and the Russian government has contradicted itself at various times in their statements over this and have now just sort of taken to trolling the British government in response that it's very, very hard to get a handle on what's actually happened here and what's going on and what the power dynamic is. So I know you wanted to get into some of those alternative theories and there are a bunch bouncing around. Um, but I will say before we do we get into that question, I, I honestly don't know. And this, this was the thing. I was not expecting those two to live. I was expecting them to be in a coma for several weeks. And after they, there was sort of no update on that, I thought chances are they're just sooner or later they're going to die then something very strange happened then as far as i can tell russian intelligence who have obviously been monitoring any contact with the scripple family back in russia between them and the two in hospital in the uk i just let me stop you really quick just just so people know the russian government has tried to ask for evidence or be involved somehow in this investigation and the UK government has explicitly disallowed them, claiming that they don't want them anywhere near the Skripals or the investigation because they're they're still essentially blaming them for the attack. Yeah. That's their excuse. That's their <laughs> that that's their logic is that because we're accusing you of murder, you can't take any role in this investigation yeah. into this attempted murder because as we um, know even you know i mean the, the way that this paranoia climate has grown so large that people are led to believe that a russian investigator would be coming back to finish the job or something like that yeah, yeah you know exactly. would bring novichek himself and be the assassin um, yeah, he'd be stabbing them in the hospital <laughs> he'd be stabbing them with a syringe full of polonium or something <laughs> and making sure that they were dead um because apparently the russians are literally that crazy even though when you actually look at the, the history of the KGB, yeah, they're, they're fairly evil, don't get me wrong, but they, they're quite intelligent and sneaky. In some ways, more intelligent and sneaky than the CIA, more like MI6. Um, and I say that with some degree of admiration. I kind of have a certain <laughs> begrudging respect for people's ability to do things in secret like that. But um, which again, so this, this kind of thing doesn't fit in with their MO. It really, really doesn't. From what I know of Russian intelligence, they don't, they wouldn't do something like this. Um, so what happens is this, this phone call 
uh, gets leaked, I, I can only guess, by Russian intelligence to Russian state media. And it's between... Which, again, is sort of just really quickly, is odd parallels to the Victoria Newland leaked phone call during the um, Euromaidan protests. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, who do you think leaked that? But <laughs> um, <laughs> So this phone call is between Yulia here in the hospital in Britain and her cousin Victoria back in Russia. And as far as, I mean, at least the translations of this that I've read... She's fine. She's absolutely fine. And Sergei is more or less fine as well. She says, you know, he's got no lasting damage. He's resting. When we were told, you know, he's in critical but stable condition, he's basically, we're told he's still unconscious. He's still in a coma or whatever. And then suddenly, no, actually, apparently he's been fine. He's presumably been up and moving around. He's just sort of, you know, a bit worn out and tired and overwrought by the whole situation. She didn't describe any lasting damage. She said that she was kind of disorientated by the whole th- experience. Um, they, they discussed her. They discussed her going back to Russia. They discussed Victoria trying to get a visa to get to the UK to bring her home. And, what? And and how Victoria hasn't been given a visa. The British government have said no, no. You, due to irregularities in your application, we're not granting you a visa. Even though, so they're effectively. One one way of looking at this is that they're holding them hostage. Oh, they're not letting the family contact them. And one one uh, thing I should note uh, mention, and I don't just I don't know if this came up in your podcast. Sorry, I keep cutting you off, Tom. But just so people right. know, um, while they were in the hospital, uh, they the UK government um, let their their pets die. Apparently, a cat and several guinea pigs were just left in their apartment. So that almost tells me that they didn't even do any kind of thorough forensic investigation of their residence itself which is just seems odd that they let their pets just stay in their apartment and die anyways apparently so yeah and that i mean that i don't want to get into it because to be honest that element of this story makes me quite sad and angry yeah but, same um yeah i mean that's that kind of tells you how unseriously they've taken this and just how sloppy they've been in what they're trying to do here that they haven't even investigated that house well enough to realize there were three pets there. I mean, for Christ's sake. Um, and even just from a PR perspective, if they wanted to get the Skripals to echo a certain narrative or to really butter them up to yeah, killing do their pet, yeah, what is an not awful. A good way. No one is endeared to you when you kill their pet. Yeah, most people, most people would probably want to kill you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it just seems it seems rather odd to say the least. Everything about this seems pretty odd to me. Um, so, yeah, as far as we know, they're not horribly poisoned by something eight times more powerful than VX gas. They're actually fine. And it seems Yulia Skripal wants to go back to Russia, which wouldn't make much sense if she thought Russia had tried to kill her. So what is going on here? But again, Tom, I bet you, and this is, and I actually haven't seen any evidence of this, but there are some really clever, clever spin people, spin masters out here who will who will say that she's intimid, she's somehow been intimidated by the Russian government into being feeling like she's forced to go back somehow, and that, and I mean, if 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 anything, that's how they're going to spin that phone call, and I don't I don't even know if I've actually seen any attempts to spin that other than saying. 
Russian intelligence leaking another phone, you know, alleged phone call. And then I think even the, the, the framing was, we don't even know if this is the real phone call, you know, or they well, didn't, that, that, they didn't that, that, that with the, the Newland initial, one. Yeah. That was the initial response. But then the problem was the BBC then spoke to Victoria on the phone <laughs> and she said, and she said, the phone call is real. That was me on the phone call. I'm 100% convinced that was my cousin <laughs> I was talking to. And she started complaining about, again, about the British government not giving her a visa to go and visit her two apparently critically unwell relatives. And so the whole thing was a bit of a PR nightmare for them. And so almost as soon as that happened, the police issued a statement, supposedly from Yulia Skripal in the hospital, that was very bland. That was all just full of, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm slowly recovering. I'm, I'm grateful for all the messages of support that I've received from all these different people. And thank you very much. And, 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 and essentially that was it. They tried to smother the story so that anyone searching for Yulia Skripal's statement or, you know, update on what Yulia Skripal has been saying would find this very bland statement before they would find the phone call that has kind of undermined this entire story. And so they have tried to spin it like that. And even in the last, uh, oh, I don't know, 36 hours or so, there's been another turn on this, which is that they're now saying, oh, they're going to give them new identities and maybe even relocate them to America because they're that terrified <laughs> oh, that yeah. Russian intelligence are going to come back and try and finish the job because Russian intelligence are that crazy. <laughs> um, and not to... No, let's put a fine point on it. I don't know if you've watched the latest episode of Homeland that just so happened to broadcast last night. But in that, a Russian double agent who has been poisoned. This is going to be my next question, actually. I, I was sorry, I was going to ask you about Homeland. I didn't realize it was aired last night, though. But that means that it was filmed many, many months ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, in Homeland, in this season, in the first episode, Russian intelligence murders an American uh, he's, he's like a general who was part of the coup attempt in the last season and he's now in prison and he gets murdered, gets poisoned in prison in the very first episode of this season and it later emerges it was Russian intelligence a few episodes later the Russian defector character from two seasons ago who is now living out his days in a nice house in the countryside not unlike Sergei Skripal is murdered by Russian intelligence <laughs> Wow. In last night's episode, get this, an FBI agent who had been turned and become a double agent for Russian intelligence, who had been tricked into thinking he'd been poisoned by the Russians, by Carrie Matheson, our CIA hero. Um, and so he's in hospital now because he had a heart attack when she poisoned him because, you know, every man that goes near Carrie Matheson ends up in hospital. Um, right. <laughs> Russian intelligence are trying to break into the hospital to get to him. And at one point, the guy who's running these active measures, the Russian black ops, is phoning up his superior saying, send an assault team. We're going to assault this, this hospital in order to you know, get, get, get to this double agent. And this episode just so happens to broadcast on the same day that they leak this story about having to move the Skripals to America and change their identities because the Russian intelligence are just that crazy and rabid and sociopathic that they're going to break into the hospital and kill them. I wow. mean, the coincidences are absurd. They're, I mean, beyond that, they're, they're downright suspicious. Um, 
You, do you watch yeah. House of Cards, Tom? Oh, God, no. Okay. <laughs> British or the American one, I'm assuming you don't watch. Oh, I've but, watched the British one. Oh, you I have? Okay. One, but no, no. I, I, I watched the first season of the American one and kind of ran out of patience with it. Well, without going into too much detail, um, I believe it was season three of House of Cards. This is before Trump won, obviously. They had a whole story about an alternative sort of populist candidate who was running against the main character for president who was using, illegally somehow using um, Cambridge Analytica style uh, personal data from voters to target them. And I just thought that was a strange thing that the, the show would weave that into the plot years before it becomes sort of a national story. Um so it, it does beg the question where, I mean, and this is just me going off on a tangent, but you, you do a lot of great work in this area, and I want to go into that a little deeper now, is just this idea of fictional works, either television or movies, having, you know, seemingly, you know, and I hate using this phrase because it's it comes from sort of conspiracy culture, maybe it doesn't actually, maybe I'm wrong about that, but the idea of pre-programming, laying some kind of ground in a, in a fictionalized narrative um, that will sort of later help propel a real life narrative or, you know, real life mixed with fictional narrative, but in the real world, I mean, versus a, a mm -hmm. um, some kind of television program or something like that. But there was also something you pointed out in your podcast, which is extremely fascinating. Um, in some ways more, more bizarre than this Homeland coincidence. You say... Um, as some critics of this story have pointed out, there is a storyline in the sixth season of Strike Back that somewhat mirrors what's going on. This series broadcast last autumn in the UK and in February and March in the US and features a whole Russian Novichok storyline. Along that, you have the new season of Homeland and you go on to talk about Homeland after that. But give me some, explain what this show Strike Back was talking about. How long ago was this? Um, and... What what are your thoughts on why Homeland and this show um, have these odd parallels to the present? Um, yeah, so I'm pretty sure Chris Ryan is MI5. Um, can't be certain of it. He's certainly a consultant on the show, and they have hired other ex-Special Forces people to be consultants on the show. I don't know whether there is actually any British intelligence or British military support for the series, but nonetheless, it's sort of in that ballpark. Homeland, we know, actually derive a lot of their storylines and their overarching sort of character and story arcs for the season from their so-called spy camp that they have before every season, where they meet up in a uh, private club in Georgetown, an old sort of spook hangout. And they talk to people from the State Department. They talk to people from the CIA white house they talk to journalists who specialize in intelligence matters and this season uh both alex ganser the main series producer the showrunner and claire danes who is now a executive producer on the show herself as well as the star have both given very public interviews where they've talked about this and they said they both referred to this idea that the journalists and the intelligence are now working together against the trump administration because as far as the cia are concerned the Trump administration is anti-factual, that they need to somehow combat this through journalism by working with New York Times and Washington Post reporters as though they weren't before. But, you know, um, very odd that TV producers would be telling us about this. But they never 
no interviewer, as far as I know, has turned around and asked them the question, hang on, if the CIA are working with journalists to promote certain narratives and certain ideas, are they doing the same with Homeland? Is Homeland just another vehicle for the CIA to promote whatever it is it's trying to get out there into the public consciousness? But it seems rather obvious that it must be. I mean, it kind of always was. <laughs> and from their bizarre admissions about this relationship between the CIA and the news media that have come out of this season of Homeland, one can only assume they're quite willing participants in this. Because if they're happy to sit there and say, oh, yeah, the CIA is working with the Washington Post to you know, undermine the Trump administration... Why wouldn't they be willing to do that with their own TV show? They seem to think this is perfectly normal and worth chatting about with Stephen Colbert and people like that. So so strange. That's what I think is probably going on. But that would, that would presume, uh, I guess, the narrative that the CIA were behind this, which might explain why it is that the British government have been so haphazard and ineffective in their response is because it wasn't their operation. If this was something that the CIA pulled off, it would make a lot more sense as to how it is that Homeland has so beautifully tied in with it. Well, let's go into some of that speculation, Tom, because I don't think it's unfair. I mean, you know, the, the question of who actually did this um, is definitely a fair question to be asking. But I think it's also important to say we don't even really know what this is necessarily because we don't know what actually happened. I mean, it seems the more I'm, I'm talking to you, the more ambiguous it, it seems and that we don't actually know what they were poisoned with. Were they simply um, drugged? You know, I mean, I, I, I don't really know what to make of it uh, the more that I'm learning about this. Um, but I think it's quite fair to say that, you know, at least the U.S. government and, and the CIA has a funny history with bioweapons. And as you already know, Tom, of the 2001 anthrax attacks is something I've been looking at for a very long time. And, you know, after the, the 2001 anthrax attacks happened, um, many, many Bush proxies, Bush administration proxies, were spreading disinfo in the media that those attacks were the work of Saddam Hussein. But at the same time, the Bush administration was savvy enough not to directly blame Saddam Hussein from sort of the pulpit of the White House or any of their official statements. Instead, they used sort of media propagandists and neocon allies that they had to spread that narrative. At the time, even the FBI's own internal people knew that this anthrax was the AIM strain, which has American fingerprints on it. Yet they were also trying to tie it to the only, supposedly the only other country in the world at the time besides Russia, they said, that had the AIM strain was Iraq. You know, and uh, of course, uh, Matt DeHart, um, a drone intelligence analyst and whistleblower, uh, claims that he was handed a, a cache of documents by an FBI agent who still remains anonymous, essentially showing him a roadmap that the CIA was behind the 2001 anthrax attacks, that they perhaps actually, the, the source of the anthrax actually came from Battelle, not Fort Detrick, Maryland. Just a complete side note, there's also another bizarre parallel here that came out through this interview that I conducted with Matt DeHart, where he claims that he set his eyes on a Nuclear Regulatory Commission document showing a radiation trail 
that was uh, that the anthrax uh, sent through the letters actually left across the, the United States that led to a location that was not Fort Detrick, Maryland. And I found this particularly interesting because one of the most explosive allegations that the MI5 has made involving Russia, as far as I know, is that they claimed in their investigation that they traced the radiation from the polonium uh, allegedly given to Litvinenko directly to Putin's presidential office. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is... It is how, just... would you, how would you do that? <laughs> what, they, so, so MI5 are claiming they've got guys with like polonium detectors wandering around the Kremlin. Um, I mean, I don't know how they did it, but that's that's what I remember hearing. I just looked it up again, and and that was their conclusion that, you know. And so back then, and this is more of a t- more me going off on a tangent, but back then it seems like they were more willing to accuse Putin directly and try to claim that there was evidence pointing to him directly as the sort of mastermind of this these assassinations. And the previous time they did it before that. Uh, they tried to say that Anna Polakishkaya was assassinated by Putin because it was done on his birthday, and they wanted the and that Putin wanted the world to know and other Russians to know that it was him, and that's why he had it done on his birthday. I've just thrown a lot of stuff at you, but let's let's speculate a bit about who could have been behind this and what the potential motive would be to do this. Um, you know, I mean, we've already we already know that. There's three major candidates that come to mind. You've already mentioned the, the CIA. That would imply the U.S. government. There's also the potential that, as you already mentioned, Iran was working on Novichok, which also means that Israel probably has worked on it as well and has a supply of it. So Israel comes to mind as a possibility. The U.K. government itself comes to mind as a possibility. And I'm also not discounting the possibility that Russia was somehow involved in this, but we still don't know what this actually is. But Tom, let me turn to you. And in your mind, where does where does your speculation sort of go? Where, what's the where, where does it tend to gravitate towards? Well, uh, have you heard this story that it might have been food poisoning? I I have actually. So that that's why I, that's why I was saying we don't know what this actually is. So that yeah, speak yeah. on that a little bit. Okay, so some people have pointed out that the reported symptoms and indeed all of the reported details that we have on this suggest or at least are consistent with food poisoning specifically seafood poisoning and we do know that the two went out for dinner at a restaurant and had seafood shortly before they were found slumped on this park bench right yes that i mean it's possible it seems almost like it couldn't it couldn't be that simple yeah (laughs) that it couldn't be that that the british government just like completely shot their load all over this story without having a clue what was going on and that the actual reality is that it's just two people who had some (laughs) dodgy you know crayfish or whatever do they do we know what they actually ate in terms of what kind of seafood it was i mean sounds like it wasn't just fish I can't remember shellfish or something. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but it was something like that. (laughs) It was the sort sort of thing that people do get sick on, and you know they do end up in hospital over. So, I I guess. (laughs) 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 How embarrassing would that be? God. Um, I'd almost rather it was MI5. You know, (laughs) I mean that'd kind of be less embarrassing for this country. (laughs) But, um, 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there is the possibility that this is some kind of British military or British intelligence operation. After all, Portendown is only just up the road. As far as we know, they do have samples of this poison that was supposedly used. They have assassinated people before. They have used chemical weapons before. So can't can't rule it out. The CIA, I mean, just as you were talking then, one of the things that came up in my mind uh, was the, that fantastic video from the Church Commission back in the 70s where they had one of the CIA directors up as the witness. I don't know if you've seen this. And they were talking about uh, the CIA stockpiling a kind of, it wasn't a chemical poison, I think it was a, a biologically derived poison, like they'd uh, sort of taken, I don't know, snake venom or something like that and, you know, adapted it for their own purposes. And they were sort of asking him, so so why did the CIA do this? Why did they spend, you know, millions of dollars developing this stockpile of, of horrible assassination venom? And he said, well, you know, it was because... It was for the purposes of assassinating foreign leaders and what have you. And they said, yeah, but according to what we know, you had record, you know, the records and everything. It says that you had enough to kill like, you know, 16,000 people. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you know, why, why did you do this? And the guy was sort of saying, well, that, that's something we can probably only get into an executive session and that we shouldn't be doing in front of the cameras. <laughs> And and you do sort of wonder, why would you have enough of this stuff to kill thousands of people? I mean, I get the CIA assassinate people. I get that they have poisons and advanced technologies and various different ways of doing this. But I don't know the answer as to why they would have so much of, of that stuff. But, you know, if they had it then, they've got whatever the modern equivalent is now... So they certainly had the capability to do something like this. And as I say, the narrative does make a little more sense, maybe, in that direction. But it's very, very hard to say. Well, I guess one of my fears initially with this, after I learned that Iran also had some history developing Novichuk, was that somehow hmm. it would be used to turn not just against Russia, but also against Iran. The, con the timing seemed very convenient, especially with John Bolton um, getting into office, especially with, and, and I'll mention this at the end, but this airstrikes that are happening against Syria right now from Isra Israeli uh, fighter jets um, that have just um, uh, launched attacks at a Syrian airbase where four Iranian uh, nationals uh, died in the attack. So... You know, I guess as we inch closer and closer to a World War III-like scenario here, I guess anything's possible. But from what you're telling me, it seems it appears that after this Porton Downs official statement came out, sort of backpedaling from some of the claims that Theresa May and others made, is that it's actually ha it has less legs now, and it's not it's not es it's not ex escalating to a higher level. Um, and I don't see that it escalating to a higher level here either, the United States, but it does seem to just build on this larger narrative, this larger snowball that, well, this is just another one of these assassinations that Putin attempted. More examples mm -hmm. of his brazen you know, attitude towards the rest of the world. And I guess the last time I can remember an incident having this much of an impact was maybe MH17, 
uh, the downing of MH17 and how that was mm-hmm. attempted, you know, to be used by um, not just the UK government, but a, a whole other, a whole bunch of European governments and the United States government. Um, w- would you say that this is one of the l- sort of the largest pushes for um, the sort of Russia phobia since MH17, or am I missing something that's happened since then? Well, aside from the election, of course. Oh, well, um, yeah, good point, good point, yeah. <laughs> Jesus but, Christ. But I suppose that's that's a different sort of thing, isn't it? Because yeah. they're saying, oh, that was some kind of long-term Russian program and they recruited Trump back way back when and blah, yeah. blah, blah. In terms of a specific event, no. This is the the biggest we've had in this country in years, certainly since MH17. This is probably bigger in this country than MH17 was. Um, oh, that makes a lot yeah. of sense, yeah. Um. And I wanted to go back to this. Uh, you mentioned <clears throat> uh, this author, um, and I'm going to totally botch his name, um, Mirazan Yanov. Uh, Mirazanov. Mirazanov. The um, how it be it. The this guy who uh, claims to be a whistleblower from within inside <clears throat> Russia's chemical weapons program. Um, he published a book in 2008 called "State Secrets: An Insider's Chronicle of the Russian Chemical Weapons Program." Um, and you, you commented earlier that, um, and I think it was actually on your own podcast that this book was not supposed to be a factual account, that it was sort of like one of those spy novels where a lot of the names and details were changed, but it it was trying to tell a true story. Is that correct? That's my understanding of it is that it is a, essentially a whistleblowing account, but a slightly fictionalized whistleblowing account. Yeah. Okay. Well, the reason I bring that book up again is because um, the blog Moon of Alabama found an interesting State Department email that was from the WikiLeaks cache, um, fr- and it's officially signed by Clinton. And I, and I, I, I mean, I highly doubt that she actually wrote this memo herself. It was probably someone like Jake Sullivan or one of her um, staffers at the State Department. But the memo says the following, and this has not gotten any play in the mainstream press at all. This is um, just not included in the narrative. This is actually a quote from Moon of Alabama's blog. Documents from the U.S. State Department published by WikiLeaks show that the then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton directed her diplomats to not talk about Novichok and to play down the matter should it arise in chemical weapons control talks. And the memo actually states the following. This is a direct quote from the memo. If AG participants raise the issue of Mira Zanov's book, State Secrets and Insider's View of Chemical of Russian Chemical Weapons Program, the Dell should, and I'm not sure what Dell actually stands for, it must be short for diplomat or something like that, um, the Dell should report any instances in which the book was raised, not start or provoke any conversations about the book or engage substantively if it comes up in conversation express a lack of familiarity with the issue. And then the last suggestion is quietly discourage substantive discussions by suggesting that the issue is, quote, best left to experts in the Capitol. Um, so I find that extremely bizarre. And I just want, and I know we briefly discussed this before we started recording, but what? But you said you hadn't heard, seen this memo before. So what is your, what's your reaction to that? What do you, what do you make of that? Well, when um, Mir 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 Zayanov, however you pronounce that name, um, 
when he first published the book in 2008, there was some degree of coverage of this. And he did write quite a lot on his blog. And he was criticized, quite heavily criticized, for including the chemical formulas for the various Novichok poisons in this book. Um, so there was quite a lot of, uh, I guess, media coverage at that time. But then the story kind of got forgotten about. And I can only assume they didn't want people looking at that, that that was, I mean, if you, if you think this guy may well have been a legitimate whistleblower back in the 1990s when he was writing about this in Russia, he actually was then arrested by the Russian government and charged with, you know, leaking state secrets and what have you. But his trial collapsed because he hadn't revealed any specific names or locations or any specific details about how you make this stuff. So that he argued all I'm doing is drawing political attention to something rather than leaking specific classified information. Um, and as a result, he, he wasn't prosecuted. He wasn't convicted. He spends a while under house arrest. He then effectively emigrates, relocates to the United States. So he's not exactly a defector, but something in that ballpark. He's now a very wealthy man. Um, and you have to wonder what kind of relationship does he have with Western intelligence? Because they'd certainly want their hands on him because they'd want to know about Russian chemical weapons programs. Because, of course, why wouldn't they? Um, so that leaves open the question of, well, if he wasn't a conventional defector in the kind of old school 1960s sense of the word, is he a, a new kind where he's sort of a whistleblower, but he's also then being used to promote certain propaganda lines in public. Because in the Cold War, Western intelligence and, in fact, vice versa, the Soviet Union did exactly the same the other way around, um, is when you've got a good defector, you use them. You put them out in public and they say, oh, you know, the, the other side, they're, they're up to the, even more terrible things than you could possibly imagine. Um, and it helps feed into the narrative that you want. And it seems credible because it's coming from someone who is supposedly an insider, you know, a, a valid source, a credible source. So I do wonder whether that book that he published in 2008 wasn't in some way state sanctioned. And the reason why the Clinton machine, at least in, in, in terms of the State Department at that point in time, didn't want people talking about it is because they had some kind of plan, some kind of intention to use this further down the line. And they wanted people to completely forget about this. They didn't want this being part of the public discussion because then if something happens with this, if they're going to somehow use this chemical weapons program as a mechanism for propagandizing against Russia later, <clears throat> they don't want lots of people talking about this and lots of articles that people can go and read. They just want it to be this kind of shocking thing that's come out of nowhere. Oh, now, now the Russians are up to this. Oh my God. We'd never heard of anything like this before. And a few people go, oh, hang, hang on. Wasn't that that guy who wrote a book a few years ago? And then, oh my God, he wrote a few, a book about this, explaining, laying all this out. And it suddenly becomes this big shocking thing that's very psychologically effective. Whereas if you've been having a conversation about this for years, it doesn't have that same impact. So uh, that's how I'd interpret it. I could be wrong, but yeah. No, I, th I think you're really on to something there. Um, 
because it reminds me a lot of, and I, and I, and this is my obsession that, you know, might mean that it's just because of my own obsession. I'm, I'm reminded of this, but before the 2001 anthrax attacks happened, a very suspicious reporter, perhaps one of the more suspicious of all of the Iraq war propagandist reporters in the United States, Judith Miller wrote a book called germs that was a New York Times bestseller that actually came out two days before the first anthrax letters hit. That was a book going into all this detail about all these deadly bioweapons that not just Iraq was producing, but also what Russia was producing. And part of me wonders if the anthrax attacks um, narrative uh, was used differently at the time by certain people, certain people in the Bush administration, would that book have then be have been used to sort of look back on it and be like, well, look, you know, maybe Russia and some of these other countries were involved in this also. And here's the, you know, this look at this book that Judith Miller wrote before all this happened, sort of laying all this out. Um, luckily, that never happened, but it seemed like there were pieces being set up in place to sort of allow that book to be fuel for a larger narrative. And, you know, luckily that did not happen at the time. Well, it's like with the, 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 the Laurie Milroy thing with Ramsey Youssef being an Iraqi agent. Yeah. Cause she spent years banging on about that. And it did seem like, are they setting this up for, you know, so when they finally get a war going or an argument for war against Iraq, going in the press they're going to kind of bring this one out and say oh no oh yeah iraq were behind the world trade center bombing as well and that aside from laurie milroy that didn't happen that much it was only really her who was pushing that one but it did seem again like well you know who else was pushing it besides her it was uh, james woolsey was heavily pushing that narrative (laughs) at the time so i i'm glad you brought that up actually because they the bush administration did try to float that again before we got into Iraq, and people may not remember that Lori Milroy actually testified in front of the 9-11 mm-hmm. Commission. Um, and she essentially said all the same stuff you're saying, that the bombs uh, that were put in the World Trade Center 93 were, was the work of Iraq, Iraqi intelligence, and goes back to Saddam Hussein. So, you know, that they attempted to, but I, I'm guessing somewhere along the line, people in the Bush administration were like, "This we can't use this right now anymore. Or someone kind of put the kibosh on that. But they still tried. Um, so I don't know why I just brought that up, but I just... <laughs> just... No, 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 for sure. But it, you, you do get this sense that multiple narratives are seeded ahead of time. And then when a, a black operation of some sort or a big propaganda operation is being executed, they decide which of these are we going to pick up and you know weave together into the story we're actually going to tell at this point in time but that they have several options on the table that over the years they've built up enough of this kind of background noise that they can turn up the you know turn up the amplification on one particular channel of that at any given time depending on what the particular political demands are and what they think will you know they can sell to the public and will be effective i i very much get that feeling that that's that's how propaganda works long term and intelligence agencies do think long term, much more so than most government agencies do, which are, you know, notoriously short termist in their thinking about almost everything. It's only really military and intelligence that have that uh, security of purpose and that stability and that knowledge that they're still going to be there in 50 years time to actually think 
where are we going to be in five years' time? Where are we going to be in 10, 20, 50 years' time? They're the ones who are producing all of these future trends reports. <laughs> they clearly do think in longer cycles than, than most government agencies and indeed most people, most institutions do. And so as applied to propaganda, I, I do get that impression that they've been seeding this kind of stuff all over the place for a long, long time. And and to go back to just what we were saying before about this notion of uh, preemptive propaganda of some kind, that's actually an idea that the British government and British intelligence were exploring around World War One, And there are some World War Two documents referring to this same idea of uh, preconditioning the public in case the Germans actually invaded Britain, for example. So they have explored these ideas. This isn't some kooky conspiracy theory. This is actually a technique of propaganda that's been around for a century. So, yeah, I, I think it is going on. The last question I have for you regarding this specific incident is um, another character in all of this who's been getting a lot of flack uh, besides Jeremy Corbyn, who's also a British, is uh, Craig Murray. And I wanted to know your opinion on his reporting about this, because um, a lot of people are saying that he scooped, you know, the mainstream media in the sense that he had sources from Porton Down or other places that were essentially telling him the same thing that Porton Down eventually released in an official statement. Um, d does he does he have sources on the inside, or and what is your general opinion on on his coverage of this? And um, do you think he just simply got lucky, or did he actually have? Uh, you know, someone on the inside who was telling him, look, there is no evidence that this came from Russia. Uh, I, I totally believe that he does have sources. This is a guy who was a former ambassador. You know, that's that's quite a senior official in the foreign office. I'm sure he still knows people in the foreign office. And if they were telling him, Porton Down can't trace this back to Russia, they can't figure it out. They don't have any evidence that this was Russia. I, I believe him when he wrote that on his blog, that that's what they were telling him. And it turned out to be true. You know, two and a half weeks later, you then have the chief executive of Porton Down on Sky News saying pretty much what Craig Murray wrote on his blog. So I don't really see much reason to doubt that. He is who he says he is. We can, you know, identify him and we know that he does have this kind of access and these kinds of contacts. And I'm not saying that means everything he ever says is true, uh, but I don't think he's a dishonest man. I've followed his blog for years and I've never seen anything on there that I thought this is either a lie or this is something that he's been fed and has naively repeated. He he doesn't tend to he's not a naive, gullible man. I, I think he's honest in what he he's writing on this. And for the most part, his coverage has been outstanding. This is the joke of it, of course, that um I mean, yeah, Corbyn got a lot of flack for initially providing some kind of scepticism or opposition, but then he kind of cowed quite quickly and, and kept his mouth shut. And since then, one ex-ambassador and a handful of investigative journalists and the slightly zanily named Moon of Alabama blog have done a better job than the entire British press and the American press and the parliament <laughs> combined. But aren't in they terms just of all... actually, hold, you know, holding the government to account and asking the questions that need to be asked? Um, but aren't they just <laughs> all in, influenced by a Russian disinformation campaign to divide the public and to get people to not trust uh, official sources? 
Yeah, of course. This is all the fault of 13 people in a Russian troll farm. Yeah. It's just so amazing when they're trying to frame it that way because it's just like the blog moon of Alabama. Yeah, it's it's just one guy. And um, I don't agree with his analysis on on other things sometimes. But, this, I mean, his analysis on this is extremely on point and very just clear on, on how bizarre this is. And it doesn't take a Russian troll farm or a Russian disinformation campaign to get a normal person with some analysis and investigative abilities to poke holes in this. That's what's so funny to me about this accusation is it's just like, mm. so as soon as you start debunking these claims, you're falling prey to Russian propaganda automatically. I mean, that's what they're, that's how they're trying to frame this is that any, I mean, and even like going back to what I was saying before, these intercept journalists who are like, no, wait a second. This portent down statement is being taken out of context by like doubters who are still like apologizing for Putin. It's like, no, that is absolutely not the case. But yet even people will just believe that, you know, that's, that's, you know, you could call that a headline in and of itself that people won't actually look at the, the statement. I read the statement. Um, it's clearly not taken out of context, but yet people will just come away believing that it was and still latch onto this, this narrative, um, which is very unfortunate. But I guess the larger framework for this that scares me now is even though, as you say, this might be dying down in the UK, it's not, you know, a lot of people are still skeptical of it. Even if that's the case, um, the timing of it happening uh, right now is is very troubling because, again, um, three days ago from the time we were recording this, there was an alleged chemical uh, chlorine gas attack done by Assad in Ghouta, Syria. Um, and this seems to have spurred the Trump administration into finally commenting, or sorry, finally committing to some type of serious military action in Syria. Um, the U.S. has now also confirmed that Israel did bomb a Syrian airbase in response um, to this chemical, alleged chemical weapons attack that killed four Iranians. Um, so I think that this definitely, this, this supposed Salisbury chemical uh, attack incident definitely is playing a role in this larger uh, equation of Syria. Um, like just, you know, what, what, what were your initial thoughts after this most recent alleged chemical weapons attack? And do you see this, you know, the Salisbury incident playing much of a, a larger role in Syria right now? I guess just give me some some thoughts on Syria and where you think that's going to go. Well, I can see it playing into that in several ways, um, not least of which is, of course, that when when the Russians kind of got deeply involved in Syria, when they sort of stepped into the fray in a kind of big public way, you may remember, I'm sure you do remember, um, one of the conditions was Assad had to, essentially had to give up his chemical weapons, that they were all apparently destroyed at that point, and that they were sort of replaced with non-chemical equivalent ballistic weapons uh, that were sold to them by, by Russia, of course, who else? Um, so Assad shouldn't have any of this stuff anymore. I'm not saying he, you know, that the Syrian government definitely doesn't, but um, I'm guessing what they're, or what some people, what some commentators are going to try and do is say, oh well, yeah, but even if Assad did give up his chemical weapons at that point, obviously the Russians are now supplying him, and so therefore this is actually a, in some ways, a Russian state-sponsored attack in Syria, something like that. Because it's been going very, very badly for the West in Syria over the last year. 
Um, ISIS have been kind of beaten to a pulp. The Syrian government has gained quite significant amounts of territory back under the Syrian government's control. It's not going to plan. And so they need something. And they need an excuse to, if they can, kind of try and elbow Russia out of the way. Because since Russia got involved in that war, it's turned. It's turned around and not become the war that the West wanted. And so, yeah, I think it is going to feed into that because it establishes this uh, narrative of, you know, Russian secret chemical weapons program. And now we have a apparent chemical weapon attack in Syria. It's only a matter of time before someone explicitly links those two together and in some way blames Russia for what happened in Syria. And therefore, well, they already have, I mean, they already have in a, not an explicit way, but in a more vague way, but they have in a stronger way than they have before with these previous alleged chemical weapons attacks. Mm. The Trump mm. administration um, did. So sooner, sooner or later, they're going to say, this is the reason why we can't trust what Russia are doing in Syria. This is why some kind of international pressure to get Russia out of the Syrian war is necessary. Um, <laughs> because otherwise, sooner or later, it's kind of going to die down and Assad's going to be back in some kind of control. And that's not clearly not what the West wants. So I think that kind of uh, conversation and that kind of commentary is inevitable at this point. Sooner or later, it's going to happen and it's going to happen quite explicitly. Whether it gets taken seriously or not, I don't know. I mean, the Syrian thing has been so hard to predict almost from day one. I've followed it not massively closely, but relatively closely, and I've never been able to predict what was going to happen next with it. So I'm not going to do too so now. Well, it's a fair fair assessment, and I think that you're right. There's going to be there's got to be some kind of breaking point eventually where obviously there's just too many forces out there that want Assad out of power. I mean, I hate bringing up the possibility of World War III and and sounding like a doomsayer, um, but Russia's not going to just leave Syria voluntarily, um, even if you know every single European country and the U.S. Uh, try to force them to. I mean, it's. I just don't see how it's going to end well. And then now that Israel is directly getting involved um, and is seemingly waging a proxy war against Iran in Syria right now is um, is just raising the stakes even more. So let's hope that it really does die down in an overall sense. And and I guess let's hope that, uh, that you know, there's enough skepticism out there that, that at least over on your side of the planet um, that, that can actually, you know, tamp this down to some degree because here in the United States it really things do seem like at a more hysterical level than than they ever have been maybe since right after 9-11 so um, it's not looking good here thank you so much for joining me today Tom on Media Roots Radio really appreciate your commentary and analysis and I think it's really important um, because frankly there aren't many people like us left out there and that's as kind of a sad commentary on what's what's going on in the state of alternative media or just media in general right now. So um, keep up the great work and hope to talk to you again soon and have you on as a guest um, sometime in the future. Well, sure. I, I, I mean, I'd be glad to be back and uh, just let me know. But yeah, it's been great talking to you. It, it always is, Robbie. I always enjoy talking with you. Same, Tom. 
Uh, everybody out there, hope um, you are spending a lot of time with your family and loved ones right now during these uh, uncertain, um, bizarre times we're living in. And yeah, um, thank you for listening to Media Roots Radio. And please donate to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Thank you very much.